Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire episode 92, Jamie 4 in A Feast for Crows. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Well, 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 look what the cat dragged back to Derry. It's Jamie Lannister. Cat's dead. It's not cat. <laughs> I mean, is she? Is she? I mean, we're going to talk about that. Conflicting rumors I'm hearing about that one. I don't know. I don't know. Dude. <sighs> Jamie 4 is exciting. I'm very excited to do this chapter. I'm also very excited for the rest of Jamie. I can't believe I'm saying those words. I never said I would say those words out loud in my life that I'm excited for Jamie Lannister. We're kind of but I'm more her. excited for rounding his chapters out with some pretty cool guests. Yes. I'm pretty excited about that. We've uh, in- talked to a couple people and are going to bring them on soon and very excited about that. Yes, stay tuned for that. We will definitely be revealing that. Hopefully next week's episode we'll have a uh, we'll have one for you. And that's not the only thing we'll be revealing. I know a couple of our patrons should be on the lookout for a POV reveal sometime in the near future in their inboxes over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon. Get excited about that. Wow. Who is our next POV? <laughs> even I don't even know. It'll be revealed to me. <laughs> it'll be a so, surprise. It'll be a surprise for all of us. Also, I want to put a disclaimer. Sorry if my audio is a little different this week. I'm having a lot of technical issues that will hopefully be resolved soon. So using a different microphone than usual. Yes, but, yes. New new situations, new environments, and yes. new emails and tweets of note. Well, yes. maybe not emails or tweet, but we did get a review from one of our friends, it looks like. Eliana, you want to take this one? Since you love reviews. I, God damn it. I don't, I'm still not sure where she gets that idea from. It's been, we've been doing this for like two years now, right? Something like that. <laughs> don't know where she gets that idea from. But we did get an iTunes review from, I'm going to just say these words, these letters together. The Edwin Binoy saying entertaining and insightful up there with Radio Westeros is one of my two favorite Asphalt podcasts. Minus one star for their burst and so many hot take. <laughs> Plus one star for the Jon Snow impression. Oh, so I both simultaneously ruined it and improved it. Yeah. The review is also entitled five stars in parentheses after some math. So (laughs) I don't remember what the whole drink was, but yeah. I'm very sorry that you had to do math because I do not. I don't want you to to. Just before this episode, really, I don't know, math. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'm really glad that my Jon Snow impression, which, God, I don't even know if I could do it anymore. It's been months now. How does it? My queen. Did that, was that it? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was that was mostly it. I think you, I think you still got it in you. Still you know, got just it. This... Everyone has a little Jon Snow in them, right? Yeah. Wait. I think. Ghost does at the very least, but yeah. Uh, I'm assuming based on this username that maybe this person will know what I mean when I'm like, maraming salamat adrin pinoy sa no sa sa review mo. So, but yeah. But also speaking of guests and you being up there with Radio Westeros. Yeah, I was just on Radio Westeros. Oh, what was it? Like a couple weeks ago discussing Sansa Stark with Lady Gwyn and Yoke Boy. And we had a really good time. 
As you all know, I don't like Sansa Stark, never cared for the girl, never talked about her in my life, so it was a little weird that they invited me on, but I was there. We'll put a link in the description. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a liar. I'm a terrible liar. Of course I love Sansa. We'll put a link in the description. It was a blast. We got to talk about her future, the wins a winner, the whole Queen in the North thing, all that jazz. It was fun. Yeah. Also, we have a lister. Um, I'll have to look up who this is quickly at some point, but she's way behind. She's way behind, I think, where we are in the podcast now, so eventually she's going to get to this. And I see you leaving comments on our uh, Sansa podcast from back then, and we're going to address those at some point. But thank you for your support. Yes, I, I know that that might actually be what you like more than reviews, which are the Podbean comments. Those are always <laughs> a surprise. I mean, once well, you they- figured out how to look at them. Both of them are surprising. (laughs) Well, without further ado, we have a very short lightning round this week. Uh, Last week's was loaded. We had, what, like 10 chapters, I think, between Jamie 3 and 2. So this week, we only have two. We start off our lightning round with Cersei 6. Cersei arms the faith, scrolls across the screen. (laughs) Oh my god. It's really the backdrop for this chapter in many ways. But then we also have the Reaver. Victorian Greyjoy plays the long game, telling his brother that he'll retrieve his fair maid, but in his heart, knowing that he plans on cucking the fuck out of him. <laughs> I mean, that is basically the end of the chapter. He's like, yeah, I'll bring your woman to you after I bang her. It's like, <sighs> alright, Victorian, you think die. that. You you think that, Victorian, I will sail the Dothraki Sea. Greyjoy. You love to love to hate him, you know. Love to hate him. He's just some such people an really love him, <laughs> like genuinely so. That brings us, of course, into this chapter, Jamie Four. Jamie stares at the ghost of his cousin Lancel, and they both come to terms with their sins. Wow, that one's really good. Thanks. Pretty short. Pretty quick. Pretty sweet. Yeah. Just moved like a little. Lance. Are you moved? I am moved. I am. It's a moving chapter in many ways. Like, it starts out with the burnt crops outside Derry were being pulled and worked by women and oxen. Bearded men with axes guarding them as they work. They flee within the hall as the Kingslayer approaches. Derry is closed. Jamie thinks it's a chilly welcome from his own blood, though, and commands Kenos of Case to let the Horn of Herrick blow. This book is so horny. Have you it noticed It is a that? horny book. Yeah. And what's interesting about this Horn of Herak, we talked a little bit about Case's uh, original Ironborn roots last episode, but this horn is based off of Herak of House Kenning, who was the Ironborn warrior that founded Kenos's family tree, basically. In the world of Ice and Fire, we learn a tiny bit more. There's not a ton about it, but the Horn of Herak is passed down from Herak's descendants. He was called Herak the Horse Son because he would blow his horn at cities and the sex workers in these cities would open a postern gate for him to slip in and take the town. This is how he captured and held Casterly Rock for the Lannisters. So right now you have Kenos of Case blowing horns to open, which we will of course see later when he goes to the Riverlands as well. He blows a horn to open there to take something for House Lannister. Uh, There are three different Ironborn kings that tried to take Casterly Rock back, and Herak actually killed two out of three of those kings personally. So the other one died, but two of them were straight up by hand by Herak. So interesting, interesting tomes, interesting tidbits of history. 
It is interesting. I feel like this whole thing with the horns, not necessarily with Herrick, but what what you're saying here, mm-hmm. this is going to come into play at some point eventually. But also later on, his dick is called a horn. <laughs> That's important for this chapter. It's horny. It's a very horny chapter. It is. It is. The flag flying ahead is quartered. The Lannister lion and the dairy plowman. Plowman horny. <laughs> Yeah, someone in Derry is trying to get plowed. It's yeah. Amory. Jamie thinks that this is all likely Kevin's work. You know, like marrying this marriage with Amory was, which is actually a smart move for Lancel, making it look like a continuation of the old line instead of Arando ruling their lands. Lancel's got a decent head in many ways. He's just like 17. I feel bad for that boy constantly. Jamie thinks Kevin would make a far better hand to Tommen than Harry Swift, who is a toad, and I mean, yes. Yeah, Harry's is like a complete toad when you think about it because, and it actually reminds me, something that reminds me of John's chapters. Remember Raymond Redbeard and how he like offered up his kids and was like, yeah, you take this kid and like sells them off and everyone's just staring. Yeah, his daughter. And this is what it reminds me of because that is what Harry Swift did. Harry's daughter, Dorna, who is married to Kevin, was a hostage. Kevin married a hostage that he took. Oh, you ever think of that? No, I didn't know that. for good behavior. That's what Dorna was. And then he married her after. And Harry's is just like, cool with that? I don't know. Kind of wild to me. Kind of gross. Something that I found on Reddit that I always loved, and I don't remember the user's name, and they deleted their account, but they, I have a link for us, but they basically did. uh, I know, right? (laughs) Good for you. I wish I could delete my account. (laughs) I wish I could log off. Uh, this person basically, after completing a dance with dragons, they realize that every time Harry Swift is mentioned, you get some sort of interesting comedic story. And he's kind of like George's favorite butt monkey, the person goes on to say. In a Game of Thrones- I'm sorry, wait, sorry, can we pause? Can, can I get a definition of butt monkey? No, you may not. Okay. Rejected. In a Game of Thrones, Harry criticizes Jamie and pisses off the Lannisters. In A Clash of Kings, he goes to Harrenhal with Tywin. He pisses off the cooks, and they all spit in his food. His squire taunts the bloody mummers and gets killed. Harrys is forced to hug and kiss Vargo Hote to make up for that disagreement with the squire. Ugh. During the Battle of the Blackwater, Harry spends the battle under his horse. He's eventually rescued by a man named Willet. In A Feast for Crows, he's briefly made Hand of the King, only qualifying feature being his stupidity, like Cersei likes. He's soon demoted to Master of Coin before he can do anything of importance. And then as Master of Coin, he's sent all the way to Bravos to sort out the King's Landing financial mess, because obviously he has no money. And this person predicted that the Iron Bank of Bravos will decide that they want to force the Lannisters to pay their debt, starting with Sir Harry's life, and that his body would be sent back to King's Landing tarred and feathered, because his house sigil is a big blue cock. Oh... Uh-oh. I thought that was very clever. I was like, I bet we'll see that. I really do. You're right. I think we, we definitely will. Especially when you think of like the Lysini Spring from Fire and Blood and Yeah. And everything Masters going of on in the different cities. Dead. That's what we're always talking about. But yeah, that's some butt monkey stuff. Some butt monkey stuff. I'm yeah, going by bad. context clues. Alright. I'm using my work computer, Eliana. I can't Google it. You can't just Google butt monkey. No, but I have yeah. been Googling Harry Swift all day, okay? <laughs> yeah, and his big blue cock. And his big blue cock. Jamie informs Strongboar that they'll need to camp. 
beneath the western wall and prepare against outlaws. He spurs honor, uh, the horse, as you'll all remember, toward the gate with the Kingsguard standard blaring. Jamie had, turns out, dispatched Red Ronnet to bring Willis to Maidenpool so they wouldn't have any more little fights because he was tired of looking at, I don't know, Brienne's ex-boyfriend. <laughs> and Pia came along with them and she's on a gelding that Peck found for her. Yes, right now she's riding the gelding. Later she'll ride Peck. <laughs> Sorry, I mean, it's true. Jamie hears her in the background calling Derry a toy castle, and he reflects that every castle except probably the rock would seem small to Pia. There's really something so Sansa-like that about Pia, like we discussed last chapter, just the way he treats her as kind of this chance for honor. And as we talk about Arya later in this chapter, that's probably something to think about too. Something about this idea of a toy castle, though, feels very Sansa-like to me. It reminds me a bit of A Storm of Swords Chapter 7 for Sansa with Robert Aaron and his toy with his doll and the toy castle built out of snow. It also reminds me, speaking of Hall, of some of the Bull theories. Remember those back in the day? The, uh, the little old idea is basically the gist that Sansa would get married in her father, quote-unquote, Littlefinger's keep, to Harry the heir, and Cersei somehow would find out about it, send armies after her, headed by Gregor Clegane. The Hound, of course, being nearby, would somehow show up magically, and the Mountain and the Hound would fight, and it's Clegane Bull, it's Heron Bull, yada yada, get hype. Bunch of other small stuff happening, yada yada yada. It doesn't really work or make sense now, I've kind of come to terms with the logistics not working, but something about that, something about that Hall connection is really interesting in the toy castle. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. And it, it, yes, there's something Sansa-esque, but in a way kind of also the reverse of that, right? Because Sansa was like, wow, all these castles are big and cool. And Pia's like, this is pretty small compared to Harrenhal. Yeah. It's like, yeah, but it's a lot less burnt compared to Harrenhal. So there's that too, but <laughs> that's most places. Peck is also telling Pia the same thing. And is like, you know what, Black Heron kinda built too big. You gotta you gotta change your expectations of the world. Which I wanna know, is this like is Peck trying to prepare her like for, for compensation? Him? I'm like, listen, Pia, I am not Heron Hall. Is that what Peck is saying here? Yeah, I'm not Heron Hall, but I can give you dairy and look. But I can make your halls moan, okay. girl. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yep. Yeah. Yep, Jamie had decided that Pia clearly has been horrendously treated mm-hmm, by the was. mountains men. Yeah, at Heron Hall, and he's like, maybe, maybe Peck would bring her comfort as long as she was willing. And he thinks about a recent memory where one of the mountains men had tried to rape Pia again, and he commands Ilan Payne to take his head off. I had her before a thousand times. He kept saying as they forced him to his knees, A hundred times, my lord, we all had her! When Sarah Illyn presented Pia with his head, she had smiled through her ruined teeth. Good for you, girl. Right, I love that. And there's a lot of uh, head presenting going on, right? You have here in A Feast for Crows, you have the mountain's head being sent to Dorne, which this is kind of mm. reminiscent of in the idea of revenge. But then there's also this line in Cersei, too, it reminds me of. The man who brought her the dwarf's head would be raised to lordship, she had proclaimed, no matter how mean and low his birth or station. In a way, Jamie refuses to bring Cersei her quote-unquote abuser's head, Tyrion's head, but for Pia, who has suffered at the hands of abusers, 
he brought her an abuser's head without Pia even asking for it. I thought there was something in there that he refused to get Tyrion for Cersei, but for Pia, he'll go out of his way to exact justice for this girl who suffered so much. Jamie has ideas of what he actually does think is right. He, he's he's confused on Tyrion, as we're going to see in the rest of this chapter. It also reminds me of a couple of the other things, right? You you pointed out the mountain, but there's also, what, Davos's head mm-hmm. and in Storm. That This was actually shitty, though, where Joffrey's like, I'm going to give you your brother's head. Like, or maybe he'll give me yours. Yeah. Yeah. Rip. Derry was well on its way to being a brand new castle under Lancel's hand. Yeah, not necessarily a great one inside, but it's getting there. The gates are oak and iron, by the way. I thought that was important, since you know me with oak and iron mentions lately. Yeah. Takes Lannister- time, Chloe. <laughs> well, this one's different, actually. This one's different because it's it says, like, oak and studded, so I didn't have it on my list. Yeah, those doors might have taken a might have taken a long time. They just fucking got here. <laughs> Lannister and Frey crossbowmen guard the ramparts, and chickens run at the sight of Honor and Jamie. Honor being the horse. Armed peasants solemnly stare at Jamie, too armed. He notices, realizing, oh, they're sparrows, not just peasants. And seven pointed stars are emerging on many of their outfits. Yeah, and a lot of this is because at around this time in the book, the faith starts, of course, coming to the forefront of the story, especially as the sparrows, who are armed now, uh, because Cersei lifted the ban on them wielding weapons, like, the other chapter ago. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's gonna go great for everyone. Jamie's gonna be like, what the fuck is happening? The maester greets the unexpected visitors. The maester also like, what the fuck is happening? And Jamie lies and says Derry was on his way to River Run. Yeah, but we know that this stop at Derry is not a stop along the way. This stop is specifically for Jamie's conscience. He has to know. He knows the siege will hold against River Run, and if he's lucky, maybe it'll end, and he won't even need to fight House Tully and raise arms against them. He learns that Kevin, the only uncle he has left, has taken off from Derry already, and the maester confirms they really can't hold and feed a thousand of Jamie's gallant men. Jamie was already prepared for that. The maester introduces himself as Maester Ottomore, not Ottoless. He apologizes for Amy's absence as she's preparing a feast for Jamie. Jamie surveys the yard. Too many sparrows. Too many frays. He asks after Hardstone, Sir Harwin Plum, and Lancel. Harwin went out after outlaws, taking five knights and twenty archers with him, and Lancel's busy praying. Needs to be left undisturbed. So Jamie's like, okay, fine, whatever. He asks for a bath in his chambers and thinks of all the times he had visited Derry. It was twice with Cersei, once on the way to Winterfell and then once on the way back. And then we have this line here of Robert Baratheon had never been loath to impose upon the hospitality of his subjects. There you go. Joffrey learned it from his dad. Yeah. That was it right there. That, that The first thing when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, a Game of Thrones, Joffrey on the Trident. You know, with Sansa being all, oh, let's stop in at their house. They have to give us stuff. Straight up got it from Robert. That would have just been like a what? Yeah, it would have just been a few weeks before. Mm -hmm. Or like throughout the entire, this entire trip. Absolutely. Literally, this is the end of the trip. Uh, Literally, he just saw his dad do it like the night before because they're on the Triton. That's true. And I mean, he saw his dad do it probably multiple times. You know, Robert's constantly like, yeah. Everyone wants me here, right? I'm the life of the party, right? Yeah. He legit thinks that. Yikes. 
until he like pukes in your shoes. He does that. The walls are bare, just like Jamie had remembered them, and Adamore says he hopes Lancel will put scenes and hangings of piety and devotion on the walls. Jamie tries not to laugh. He recalls Tyrion showing him where Derry's tapestries had once hanged by the darker square stones in the wall, and remembers how Tyrion paid a serving man to show them the missing tapestries. He showed them to Jamie by the light of a candle, grinning, woven portraits of all the Targaryen kings from the first Aegon to the second Aenys. If I tell Robert, mayhaps he'll make me Lord of the Dairy, the dwarf said, chortling. Aw, oh, they used to have fun together. You know, even though Jamie was harboring this horrible secret, but... I'm not sure that this connects entirely, but there's something here that kind of just, you know, reminds me a little of Littlefinger requesting the hunting tapestries from King's Landing. But beyond that, it's also a reminder of, I don't know, like, where do the loyalties of House Dairy lie? Because if you'll all recall, the man who did a lot in saving Viserys and Daenerys during the Siege of Dragonstone, and then ended up caring for them for, like, I don't know, about five years or so until he died, was Sir Willem Derry. Yeah, this definitely made me think about that. And it's not exactly direct, but I do think it relates, because the hunting tapestries Littlefinger requests were what Robert had replaced the dragon heads with on the walls where they used to be decorating in the throne room. And it's more likely these are Baratheon hunting tapestries because he was supposed to have brought them from Storm's End to King's Landing right. with him. Littlefinger would want these, hopefully, maybe as insurance to have a card up his sleeve for Baratheon lineage and prove the Lannisters were false. But it does beg the question then, were the Targaryen tapestries in King's Landing when it fell? Did one of the dairies grab them? Bring them home? That's an interesting idea. Thus making the split loyalties of dairy very interesting. And, I mean, currently we see there really is no dairy, right? Like, there's Amy and Maria. That's what we have. Yeah. But I, I think that's an interesting idea. Who knows? And, like, maybe they were like, I don't know, Robert's never going to fucking come here, right? <laughs> and <laughs> he does. And they're like, shit! Gotta clean the house like I do every single time people are suddenly coming over. Jamie's room looks out upon the godswood and Ottomore, this is actually a solid name, tells him it adjoins with the ladies, a serving room between them. He's being given the Lord's room to sleep in and Jamie thanks the kindness of his cousin and he's like, I didn't mean to put Lancel out, but it turns out Lancel's sleeping in the sept, not in his chambers anyway. Sleeping with the mother and the maiden when he has a warm wife just through that door? Jamie did not know whether to laugh or weep. Maybe he's praying for his cock to harden. The rumors of Lancel being incapable after his wounds in battles rolled around King's Landing, but Jamie thought he should still at least try. <laughs> he wouldn't be able to secure Derry without an heir on his half Derry heir wife. It's just, it's like one of my favorite puns. You yeah. know, his, his half Derry heir wife. Yes. Yes. And her derriere yep i don't get a lot of joy J considering that george doesn't talk about derrieres that much to be honest this is it this is pretty much the only mention of derrieres in the entire book eliana entire book <sighs> jamie gets the sense at this point that maybe this side quest was a bad decision but he thanks maester adamore anyway reminds him about his bathwater, and has peck see the maester out the Lord's chambers are definitely different than the last time he'd stayed here. 
Before, there were mirish carpets and brand new furnishings everywhere, and Raymond Derry's bed had brown velvet draperies and oak wood posts carved with vines and leaves. It was able to sleep six. It was huge. Now there's a lumpy straw pallet laying on stone rushes in front of the window, and it's eventual light in the morning. You know, when you think about it, that wasn't that long ago, you know? Just beginning of this <laughs> book series in a way. But Lancel, I too have strange themed winds whims when I decide to just randomly redecorate my Animal Crossing house. So I get it. Anyways, it's bath time. Bath time. It's not my favorite bath time. We all prefer a Storm of Swords bath time, but we'll take a Feast for Crows bath time. It still has some Brienne horniness, so stay tuned. Little Lou helps Jamie get nude. More like Little Lude, if you ask me. And Peck and Garrett bring the water up. Pia finds him some clean clothes and shyly watches him while she shakes his clothes out. Jamie gets a little horny, looking at Pia's curve of hip and breast in her rough-spun brown dress, and remembers the things she whispered to him at Hall when Kyburn had sent her to him. Uh, he's thankful for the water cover that he soon gets, of course, shielding his boner from everyone, and then he starts to think of another bath, one he shared with Brienne. A different horniness that's deep within him. Yeah, I'm sure you all remember that chapter. That was a big one. Very exciting. In both of those chapters, actually. Recently, Stephen Atwell put out his essay on A Storm of Swords, Jamie 6, and he actually discusses Jamie's boners and how it's indicative of his distancing from Circe. And he even talks about it, and I thought this was interesting, like, you know, poor Pia, who at that time has been kind of coerced into having sex with all these Lannister men, right, by Kyburn and and Roos and being sent to people. And soon after they leave, as we know, is raped several times. She gets, like, one chance to live out her sexual fantasy, as Atwell points out, and then she just, like, gets shot down. Yeah. It's, uh... It's really sad and rough for Pia, obviously, like awful, like literally awful, especially having to deal with all those mountains men. But that's a really interesting way to look at it, especially because like these are the first boners Jamie's getting that have nothing to do with Cersei. I mean, it's the first ones that we see. He might have had other boners in his well, life. Yeah, I mean, you know? George isn't going to discuss the morning wood every morning, and he's not going to discuss all of Jamie's boners. Okay, I get it. But I'm just saying, like, this is... Yeah, that's true. This is the first not-Cersei boner we are seeing. These, yeah, these are all significant boners that are being noted here. He thinks he must remember his vows, while conflating all this horniness in the bathtub, and that Pia's more fit for Tyrion's bed than his own. He sends Pia away, asking Peck to bring soap and a stiff brush to him. He then has a super macho man-to-man chat with Peck, and he's like, do you want her? And Peck is embarrassed, and Jamie's like, if Pia will have you, you should take her. She can teach you new things. You probably won't have any kids, because she hasn't had any kids yet from everything going on. And uh, you need to be good, though, to her. And then he gives her like a really nice, deep talk about how... You have to be gentle with her kind, soft touches, and know you're not going to marry her, but you should treat her like you are. And then he offers him the straw lord's bed and says, you'll feel like a lord after if Pia knows her business. Interesting, Jamie, giving advice on wooing women. You have literally (laughs) no experience, Jamie. But, you know, only towards the beginning of this story, do we actually hear some, like, John, right? Jon Snow fearing having a bastard. It's one of his, like, biggest anxieties in life. 
Yet, it doesn't come up that often during his actual affair with Egret, right? His relationship with her. He doesn't seem that worried about having a bastard. So it's really interesting to hear Jamie calling that out here to me, because it, it feels unique in that I don't think we really hear Tyrion or Theon, right? A lot of these people, like, worrying about having a bastard. And I, it just feels like it stands out in Jamie's story because, I mean, clearly Jamie's pretty fertile, right? Yeah, like, that's a thing that happened, having bastards, and they were pretty significant to this overall, overall story. And it's a really interesting perspective to take on it, especially because as we move on in this chapter, we're going to talk about his quote-unquote three treasons that he calls it. So that's something to definitely highlight. And it's funny that you bring up John and Egret and that idea of like, you know, when they were sleeping together and he's like, oh, I can't have kids. I was actually unrelating Pia with Egret because it's kind of similar in the way Pia says there's a toy castle and Egret thinks that, you know, the, the mill is a castle. So it's kind of these yeah. weird innocences that are being shared between these two characters, but in opposite ways. Yeah, it just shows like how the perspective, you know, the environment you grow up in informs how you see the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Pia, you gotta lower those standards, you know. Girl, if that's not the first thing I learned. <laughs> we have this quote here of, When he descended for the feast that night, Jamie Lannister wore a doublet of red velvet slashed with cloth of gold and a golden chain studded with black diamonds. He had strapped on his golden hand as well, polished to a fine, bright sheen. There was no fit place to wear his whites. His duty awaited him at Riverrun. A darker need had brought him here. I think it's very important that Jamie is basically wearing a Cersei outfit here, or a Joffrey outfit. Uh, you look back to Sansa Five in A Game of Thrones, where Joff is on the throne wearing plush black velvet slashed with crimson, a shimmering cloth of gold cape with a high collar, and on his head a golden crown crusted with rubies and black diamonds. And then in Arya Five, A Game of Thrones, you see Cersei wearing her black morning gown slashed with crimson, a veil of black diamonds in her hair. So very similar with that crimson slash of velvet going on. Jamie here in this moment is embodying the Lannister look because he's here to confront his past with Lancel and get truths and answers on the Lannister level. This is not a Kingsguard mm-hmm. mission. This is a Jamie Lannister mission. This is Jamie trying to understand what the truth is about being a Lannister. And I think that makes sense because we see that Jamie puts a lot of stock into when he wears the white cloak and when he doesn't, right? that mm-hmm. That's something that's pointed out that we discussed when he thinks upon the memory of killing Ares, right? He's very he's very clear in those moments when he is dressing as a Lannister versus a Kingsguard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes he feels so. like he doesn't belong, right? At the beginning of this book, he's like, I wish I were wearing Lannister colors right now. Yeah, and then it gets to a point where he never wants to again. Yeah, except for right now. It's a pretty cool outfit, so, though. He enters the hall, crowded with tables and smoke. Lancel's seat on the dais is empty. And Lady Amory offers to Jamie that, you know, actually Lancel prefers to fast for the High Septon. He notes that the 18-year-old Amory is long-legged, full-breasted, and healthy, but her pinched, chinless face reminds him of his weasel cousin, Cleos. Rest in pieces. <laughs> Damn. Uh... And also he's reminded that she is in fact not porking Lancel at this moment and creating heirs. 
Uh, Jamie's like, I wonder if that's why Kevin left so quickly. And he listens to Amy tell some stories about her first husband dying at Gregor Clegane's sword when they were still allied with the Starks. Old conversation topic. Yeah, far old. Jamie's like, ooh, sore subject for me. Uh, She says that Pate was so brave and had wanted to make a name for himself. Jamie thinks we all do. And tells her he had sworn to best the Smiling Knight when he was a squire. She doesn't know anything about the Smiling Knight, so he tells her he was the mountain of Jamie's boyhood. Half as big, twice as mad, long dead. Amory begins to cry, and her mother, the only Derry amongst many Frey relatives Amory brought over to Derry, asks Jamie to forgive her daughter. She still grieves for her father. Outlaws killed him! sobbed Lady Amory. <laughs> father had gone out to ransom Peter Pimple. He brought them the gold they asked for, but they hung him anyway. Hanged, Amy. Your father was not a tapestry. Lady Maria turned back to Jamie. I believe you knew him, sir. So it's interesting that we have this correction here of the language of what it means to be hanged versus a tapestry being hung. Because earlier in the chapter, we actually have this line, right? And and you touched on it briefly. The keep was much as he recalled it. The walls are still bare, Jamie observed as the maester led him down a gallery. Lord Lancel hopes one day to cover them with hangings, said Ottomore. Scenes of piety and devotion. And I, I don't think... Ottomore thinks that Lancel's out there gonna, like, hang people. Clearly no one thinks that of Lancel. But but this idea of hangings being tied to piety and devotion, it, it's just a thought, especially, like, as the faith militarizes. It makes me think of the line from Sansa One of Feast for Crows when Marillion is singing mm. up in the, uh, the sky cells, and he, the line is... He sang of the Dance of the Dragons, of fair Jeanquil and her fool, of Jenny of Old Stones and the Prince of Dragonflies. He sang of betrayals and murders most foul, of hanged men and bloody vengeance. He sang of grief and sadness. And of course, we know that there's very much so some punctuation in this chapter regarding Lady Stoneheart we're about to come up on. And I think a lot of the hanging that's going on here Mm -hmm. within the walls of Derry is uh, really reflective of the hanging going on outside of the walls of Derry. Yeah, true. Jamie tells Maria about their squiring together at Craig Hall, him and Merritt Frey, although he also remembers, you know, Merritt Frey is a bully, kind of like Lil Walder, but you can't just fucking say that to someone's widow. So instead he says, Merritt was strong. It's like the only nice thing he could say to the grieving family. (laughs) <laughs> he was a strong boy a very strong boy Amory says her father told stories of their fights against the Kingswood Brotherhood and Jamie rightfully thinks that they are lies and boasts as Merritt had gotten pox from a camp follower and then caught by the White Fawn the White Fawn of course had burned her sigil into his ass and ransomed him back to Sumner I love that this is, like, obviously a lie, the story, because Amy literally just showed us she knew nothing about the Kingswood Brotherhood. Like, she straight up is going to say to us, Oh, yeah, well, when you killed the Smiley Knight, but at the same time, in the same hand, turn around and say, as he tells her, you know, I did not do that. That's not what happened. Uh, and she doesn't listen to the stories or listen to what Jamie's saying. However, 
she's not, maybe she's not paying attention to her father's war stories and maybe Merritt wasn't telling the truth, but it seems that she's kind of laying it on thick on Jamie, right? We see that when she starts to try to convince him to stay and defend her and the keep in Lancel's name. And it kind of reminds me of the lies that Cersei tells him in a way, because she's, you know, blinking prettily and crying and touching his golden hand and pulling back. And she uses the whole, you killed the smiley knight. She's doing exactly what Cersei does, right? She is flaunting herself and flirting and crying for swords to attend her and protect her. And as we near the end of the chapter, we start to understand a lot more of this kind of projection going on with Jaime onto Lancel and Lancel onto Jaime that Amory is basically Cerseying in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that comes through really strongly when you read all of these chapters together, all of Jaime's chapters together. And... I just really appreciate that she she couldn't have been trying that hard, right? The smiley knight. Like, okay. <laughs> and yeah, so Jamie slips his golden hand around the wine glass and lifts it to Merritt's memory. And he's like, you know, maybe that'll that'll just end. We can stop talking about Merritt <laughs> if we just drink to him. And I'm like, that's relatable content. Yeah. They move on and start talking about four-legged wolves at the table and how they've been attacking men and trains in the woods. The Frey party almost fell to them on the way in, darn, and Adam Marbrand relates to him with their journey as well. Good. <laughs> Jamie becomes more interested in his food. He observes things happening around him, like Adam Marbrand charming a girl, Stefan Swift playing the Battle of King's Landing out with his food, Kenos puts a serving girl on his lap and urges her to uh, stroke his horn, as we commented, and Sir Dermot is telling tales of gallantry from the Rainwood to some squires. Jamie finally turns back to Lady Maria, the only real interesting person at this table, let's be real, asking if the outlaws that killed Merritt were Barrack's group. But after tracking them through the Hagsmire, it turns out they're less sure. The small folk spoke of a one-eyed man and a man who wore a yellow cloak. And a hooded, cloaked woman with terrible eyes and a scarred face leading them. Interesting. Whomst? Whomst? She's gonna be in season nine of the show, you know. Oh, the one that the books are based off of? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> After this moment, Jamie actually thinks about Wenda the White Fawn again, right? Who's brought up earlier as having branded Merit. And, you know, it turns out we don't actually know what happened to her after the Kingswood Brotherhood was disbanded. And part of me kind of wonders, is she going to come up again in the story? Are we going to find out what happened to her? Is she going to return? You know, it's it's... Kind of interests me that I, I don't know if she will return. I mean, there's tons of the theories like that she's pr- actually Lamore, uh, that you know she's mm. this person, that person, whatever. And I do think there's some merit there, uh, some merit for Whoa. there for Lamore. Some <laughs> merit. Got him. I'm out of control. But when you look at Wenda, <laughs> Wenda was brought up as early as a storm of swords, uh, and you know was carried through the plots out through the end of a dance with dragons. So I think that she's being brought up for a reason, but at the same time, when I think about that entire group of people from the Kingswood Brotherhood, you have, like, Simon Toyne, the Smiling Knight, Oswin Longneck, the Thrice Hanged, which is an interesting one, meaning, like, he's been hanged and keeps coming back. It's interesting that his name is Longneck. Makes me think of Littlefoot in The Land Before Time, but... Well, I was thinking more of, like, someone who keeps dying and coming back, right? And you have all these names like Fletcher Dick, Big Belly Ben. It it does make me think that maybe it's more of just, like, an allegory or a related thing for you to look at the Brotherhood of Without Banners and look at the Kingswood 
and like relate mm-hmm. some of the characters. And there's one female character, and not counting Lady Stoneheart, uh, if Brienne and Jamie do end up joining up, kind of makes me wonder if Brienne will be their current Wend of the White Fawn in the Riverlands for a little bit. Interesting. I wonder if uh, there's going to be like a one-to-one or something for Gendry or whatever. So mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see. Right now we got Lady Maria and Strongbor who are very firm that Beric and Thoros were nowhere to be seen with that crew and that everyone has actually seen Beric die now. Many different deaths, so they're like, who fucking knows? And now people are, like, making up tales that Beric can't be killed, and Lady Amory says that Sir Harwin has promised her Beric's head, and that he's very gallant. Which head did he promise you, honey? The horn. <laughs> the one on his horn. <laughs> his horn? Oh, she's fucking Sir Harwin, everyone, if you didn't catch on by now. And Maester Ottomore, for all I know. God. Oh, Maester Ottomore. The, so the rumors about... The Brotherhood Without Banners here, though, are kind of interesting with how they're mixing together. I mean, like, that's how rumors are, right? Like, and we see that happen a lot throughout the story. But, you know, we do know that there is a one-eyed man. And we do know there's a hooded, cloaked woman. They don't coexist at the same time as these rumors are saying they do. But it's both true. Gathering intel's hard. I just thought that was that was a fun <laughs> way that that was all written. Henry blushes beneath her tears and Jamie thinks of Tyrion again. Whatever became of giving women flowers, Tyrion might have asked. He would have had a few choice words for Harvin Plum as well, though Gallant would not have been one of them. I enjoy that Jamie is talking to Tyrion so much in his head, you know? Yes. Obviously we know he's going through it. And Tyrion's talking to himself too, right? Simultaneously, pretty much, when he's on his trip over there and he thinks things to himself too. So it's a very similar kind of headspace. I'm really excited to pull some of those as we keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. So Sir Harwin's a plum, but he's a little different than the plums Jamie knew, who are usually loud and lusty with thick necks and red faces. And yes, Tyrion also has his own plum that he's meeting, right? Uh, Harwin is hard-eyed, unforgiving, and deadly, wielding a hammer. I think there's some interesting stuff going on here, and I'm just going to pull us all in on this allegory for Amory and Cersei and say Harwin is kind of similar in description to Breakbones, Harwin Strong from history, mm-hmm. and yes, also to Kettleblacks. Yeah, uh, and there's a little more than that, too, but not just in the sense of the bartering for protection for a queen or lady's love, quote-unquote, or just, you know, cat, but even in the looks, right, the hard-eyed, unforgiving, and physically deadly, Breakbones was one of the strongest men, strongest hmm. men, in the Seven Kingdoms, and I, I also think Jamie's probably going to get some Robert vibes, from this guy, right, with the strength and that he wields a hammer. And if you really want to connect it, a lot of these people that I'm referencing came from Harrenhal. The seat of House Strong, the Kettlewents, I mean the Wents, and uh, you can't stop me. And also from House Whore, who also had a Harwin, Harwin Hardhand. George, what are you doing Interesting. Here? Yeah, yeah. It's, it seems like a very much so, like, Strong's reference. I, I get the real... I wasn't even going to mean this for be a to be a pun, but like I do get very strong vibes from him. So. <laughs> exactly. And uh, it just reminds me, I mean, Jamie left what with Cersei saying, oh, yes, Kettleblack will be in charge of the Kingsguard. So can't really be happy about this, I'm sure. Meeting yeah. yet another strong boy. Yeah, someone else who reminds him of all that, like, great. Especially as he's here, you know, meeting up with Lancel. 
He thinks of Harwin, though, as a man to command a garrison, not a man to love. She doesn't, she's not saying she loves him, just that she's fucking him. <laughs> and he has second thoughts while gazing at Amory, who tastes the first course and then sends it to Jamie. It's a river pike baked in a crust of herbs and nuts, and I got real hungry when I read that. Sounds so good. And also, to be fair, Jamie doesn't understand when a woman's looking to fuck and not looking for love. That's true. Actually, he doesn't. He's very That's like bad the whole thing. That. That's literally this whole thing happening. Yeah, they're they're even like telling him, Jamie, I want to fuck. And he's like, I don't understand. Why don't you get married? And have kids. <laughs> yeah. he's Settle like, down. What if I... Actually, that's really demeaning, right? If you think about it. What if, like, like you know, your crush is like, you know, interesting. Thank you. But what if I tried to set you up with this other person? And thankfully it works out for these people. But it's kind of insulting. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> A little Amory reaches across the table to caress Jamie's golden hands, like we said, and begs him to stay and kill Barrick and the Hound that he slew the smiling knight. Oh the Sword of the Morning slew the smiling knight, my lady. Sir Arthur Dane, a better knight than me. Jamie pulls his hand back and turns his attention to Lady Maria, asking once more for information on this hooded woman and her men. She supplies that once they went north of Hagsmire, their scent disappeared in the neck. Kenos cheerfully quips he hopes they're swallowed by lizard lions or quicksand, and Danwell Frey adds that the frog eaters may shelter outlaws, because, you know, the Freys are big fans of the Cranogs. Uh, Lady Maria says it's not just them. The river lords are hand in glove with them as well. And Amy sniffs and says, the small folk too. Sir Harwin says they hide them and feed them. And when he asks where they've gone, they lie. They lie to their own lords. Gasp. Gasp. Because you guys fucking suck, Amy. Like, they don't owe you shit because you don't fulfill your part of the feudal bargain. I thought you were almost a good fray. I forgot she's not even that good. She's just sex positive. Fuck. Yeah. It turns out yeah. not a sex positive doesn't make you a good person. Uh, Amy's, Amy's just got nuance, you know? Yeah, she's a gray <laughs> character. She is a gray character. She's definitely afraid, you know? She's not afraid. Oh, wait. Um, oh. Strongboar says they should have their tongues out, but Jamie's like, that's a little counterproductive, Strongboar. So everyone chill out and explain to them. If you want their help, you need to make them love you. That was how Arthur Dane did it when we rode against the Kingswood Brotherhood. He paid the small folk for the food we ate, brought their grievances to King Ares, expanded the grazing lands around their villages, even won them the right to fell a certain number of trees each year and take a few of the king's deer during the autumn. The forest folk had looked to Twine to defend them, but Sir Arthur did more for them than the Brotherhood could ever hope to do and won them to our side. After that, the rest was easy. I'm going to swerve from what could be a natural discussion about justice system in Westeros to talk about Cersei VI, which was the chapter before where she weds Robert Baratheon in her memories on her wedding day. And the passage is, The day she wed Robert Baratheon, thousands had turned out to cheer for them. All the women wore their best, and half the men had children on their shoulders. When she emerged from inside the sept, hand in hand with the young king, the crowd set up a roar so loud it could be heard in Lannisport. They like you well, my lady, Robert whispered in her ear. See, every face is smiling. For that one short moment, she had been happy in their marriage, until she chanced to glance at Jamie. No, she remembered thinking, not every face, my lord. 
I think it's such a big contrast from Jamie right now, who's like, I want nothing to do with Cersei until I understand everything about it, until I get the truth, which he already knows the truth, let's be real. Uh, he just doesn't want yeah. to admit it to himself. And this passage of Cersei, she's remembering kind of similar thing, right? Like, right here, this is the answer for them. Like, to have a successful... He just gave the answer to have a successful uh, democracy, not democracy, obviously, but successful ruling in this country, in this nation, where the small folk are, you know, people. It's all they're asking for. Uh, and Robert, as well, you know, they, they wanted to cut out the tongues, and here's Robert Baratheon, here's Jamie Lannister, both preaching, no, show them that you can rule just and well and be happy. You know, and not a dick and not burn everyone. And you'll be good. That's all you need to rule. It's not a very hard thing. You know, sometimes it makes me wonder, like, hmm, it's really funny that the one thing that rulers don't give the people is the thing they want. And I mean, we haven't interestingly seen Jamie do this much yet, right? Right. He hasn't actually demonstrated. And as far as I, I, I've seen, like, put some of this into practice. Mm-hmm. But he obviously knows it because, I mean, it's the opposite of what he saw Ares do. It's just difficult, of course, because other than Ares being the example of him being like, wow, no, that's what not to do. And then him (laughs) seeing how successful Ned Stark was. But uh, his other big example, right, is Tywin. It's hard to unlearn that. We're seeing it with Tyrion and Cersei, so. Maria agrees with the things that Jamie's saying and is like, Jamie, you are wise. The small folk need to love Lancel for them to be rid of the outlaws. She asks Jamie to stay to keep the peace, but his place is with the king. Strongpour says he'll come back to fight for the dairy keep, that Beric was nothing but a comely lad in a silk cloak, slight callow. Hmm. But young Sir Arwood Frey says that was before he died. Death changed him. He doesn't stay dead. And not just Beric, the hound was something to fear as well, slaying 20 good men at salt pans. Thank you, Chloe. You're welcome. I'll never stop, you know? I'll always be here for you, Eliana. Just like Arwood Frey, apparently. Arwood Frey is here for us in his two mentions of the story and appendix (laughs) Yeah, I was like, who the fuck is this? Yeah, so Arwood Frey has four kids with Rayala Royce. He's the only son of Hostine and Belena Howick. This is all according to the appendix. And he kind of seems like not too bad of a Frey. Not to be like an asshole, but how he speaks here, he kind of speaks honestly like, yo, I rode. I saw all this stuff firsthand. It's not true. And it's funny to me that he's uh, denoted as so young because I want to say that he has to be like in his 30s or so. I'd say he's probably about Jamie's age, uh, according to like if you follow the appendix and the logic, which we know sometimes George slips up. He doesn't really care. There's too many phrase, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Just enough phrase that you can kill a bunch of them off next book, you know? Yeah, maybe, I don't know, the nickname's stuck. But, you know, Arwood Frey could still disappoint us as we realized, wait, I forgot. Amy kind of sucks. Oh, God. <laughs> Go away. Delete. Delete. Strongbore laughs dismissively, saying it must have been 20 good fat ink keeps or 20 serving men, but not 20 knights. Oh, Arwood, having rode with Harry and Donnell High, insists the knights at Saltpans hid behind their walls while everything was raised. They thought it was Barrack, but all they found was bone and ashes amidst Sir Quincy's keep. The hound had put the buildings to the torch, it was said, peopled a sword and rode off laughing, and mutilated the woman as well. If you notice, I'm saying it very happily because I know it wasn't my husband, so I don't have to feel bad about it. It was not him. This is a reread, y'all. 
Yeah, we we all know this, and like Jamie also is kind of like this. I mean, he paid attention, right, to Sandra Clegane, the other person that his son idolized. Like, it sounds a lot like Gregory Clegane's work, not the Hound, but Arwood insists that, I mean, he was wearing the Hound's helm. Everybody saw it. Like, all of his victims are saying it, all right? Like, Arwood and company, like, found them after. Like, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's like a dog helmet, and Arwood calls it butchery, but Maria says that's offensive to honest butchers, and says instead that it was done by some fell beast in human skin. This is a time for beasts. Jamie reflected, for lions and wolves and angry dogs, for ravens and carrion crows. Wait, do you, do you think he means it's a time for the carrion crows to to feast? I Maybe, or maybe Jamie's saying, you know, like, it's time for a book, us to be two books down for, I don't know, a time for <laughs> wolves? So we know that in the next chapters, this is solved. Uh, Brienne's chapter coming up next makes it not Sandor. We hear that uh, the Hound is dead. Sandor Clegane is at rest. And and, and I love that Jamie has really been talking about Sandor a lot. Like you said, he's really been keeping tabs on him. It really seems that Jamie does kind of root for the underdog. Wow. Sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what's into me tonight. It's Jin. Jin's it's like we flipped. <laughs> uh, it does make me kind of wonder. So I know a lot of people think Sandor might go to the Vale and save Sansa, which I don't think is going to happen, and you know me, I wish it would, but I don't think it would. Uh, and people think maybe Brienne and Jamie might go there, which I also don't think is going to happen. I think they're going to be busy in the Riverlands and dealing with all that jazz. I almost wonder and think Sandor is going to join up with the Broken Brotherhood and with the Braimy crew. It feels like because of that whole rooting for the underdog thing for Jamie, like there's so much Sandor in these Jamie chapters that I'm finding. And with this being before the Quiet Isle chapter, I feel like it's just all connected. I just wonder if they're all going to meet up. And that would be interesting because Sandor can be like, no, I saw your daughter. She ran away from me. She was supposed to kill me, but <laughs> she fucking didn't do that. Well, and that's the other thing, too, is he has that answer. And yeah. on top of that, how else are we going to see what Sandor does? What POV are we going to see Sandor through next book? Mm. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, for the Dunk the dunk crew to come together, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the other thing. They're all related. Yeah, it's one big family. Just like Jamie and Cersei. Strongbor, filling his cup once more, swears his sword to hunt down... Sandra Clegane for them, stating, Dogs don't frighten me! But Jamie thinks, I think that Sandor should frighten you. Then Amory thanks him for helping a lady in distress, and Jamie knocks his wine over. Everyone pretends to not notice. Very, very courtesy, right? And he's like, I think it's actually pity. Dinner's done. He's done. And then Amory, like, freaks out. She's like, wait, don't you want any of the venison? Or there was another dish that was coming after, and it sounded really good. It was, like, something stuffed. It, it was Capon stuffed with something. And I was like... Yeah. We gotta quit doing these episodes when we're hungry. I know. I know. But he should have he stayed, first of all. But also, I, in that moment, I really related to Amy. Because I was like, dude, I understand the feeling of, like, oh my god, you're not gonna stay and eat the rest of the food. <laughs> that I made, sure. Got I know, made and by I, people. I, I would feel really anxious in that moment. I'd be like, "What do you mean? Ugh. Was it bad? Was the food bad? Did you not like it? What do you want?" Well, 
Jamie, of course, does not have time to discuss those little things with Amory Frey. It's time for him to go. He's ready to go get some sausage. Just kidding. He's not going to eat sausage. He's going to meet his cousin, who is at the sept, past where the sparrows are sitting, cooking sausages above their flames. He wonders how many sausages they suckled out of dairy and thinks they'll be eating rats by winter unless there's another harvest. But it's a bit too late in autumn for another harvest. He heads into the windowless sept, seven-sided, timbering with carved doors and a tiled roof. Three sparrows are guarding the inner ward, and they ask him where he's going. One advises him Lancel is praying to the father for guidance. A beardless boy, Jamie thinks at first, but then realizes, no, she's a woman. He grows impatient with them, asking if they know who he is, and he receives the following. The first one, the big man with the starry eye, says, some lord. The small man with a big beard says, some cripple. And the woman says, the kingslayer. But we're no kings, just poor fellows, and you can't go in unless his lordship says you can. Let my cousin pass in peace, friends, Lancel said softly. I have been expecting him. There's some really interesting stuff happening here with the framework, and and it might be for part of for that fever dream that's coming up later on in this book. We have in that fever dream of Jamie and what he thinks and what we think as the audience is his mother. Who are you? He had to hear her say it. The question is, who are you? This is a dream. Is it? She smiled sadly. In, in a way, it also reminds me of the three kings guarded the Tower of Joy, guarding it with kind of their little riddles saying, some lord, huh. some cripple, the kingslayer. We're no kings, just poor fellows. Yeah, and, and just defending that. I was thinking of it actually in contrast to the Kettle Black, who was guarding the sept when Jamie returned to King's Landing. So this King Kettle Black, who is, right, one of the King's Guard, cared when he learned that it was the Kingslayer, even though he was all like, you can't go in there. Absolutely not. Don't you know who I am? I'm a Kingsguard. And Jamie's like, yeah, I'm your fucking boss, dude. <laughs> and then he realizes, oh, it's you. And then he lets Jamie in, even though he's not supposed to, to see, again, another one of his family members in a sept. And so between like that and this, we see where people's loyalties lie, right? Like, because mm-hmm. there, that Kedalaka's loyalties were towards the Lannisters, and and to Jamie, right? To any nobility that's ordering him around here, we have poor fellows, people who, in theory, right, would be, as people say, would be more, like, demure, but in various as riddle, they're choosing the priest, and they refuse even the Kingslayer in Lannister, decked out in Lannister clothes, and is like, no, you can't go in. Yeah, it's almost like Lancel's only accepted and protected because of how holy he's being. It's very interesting, and... Something I didn't really think about until now, too, is the way that Jamie regards the girl of the three poor fellows. And he notices the woman uh, throughout this chapter. It's a very prominent thing. He notices the woman that are working who might not be necessarily in normal garb or normal dresses like he's used to with ladies. Yeah. He's thinking about Brianna a lot, isn't he? Like, he's not saying he's thinking about it. But at first he was like, are you a man? And then realizes, no, you're a girl dressed like a man. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, Brianna. of course. Yeah, of course he's thinking about Brienne all the time. That's why he'd send Red Ronan away. Couldn't stand his face. <sighs> so once the sparrows are moved aside, Lancel does not look good. Thinner than he had at King's Landing. He's wearing a plain tunic, looking like a beggar, and his head is shaved smooth. His beard's grown out a little, but Jamie would 
think that he'd be insulting the peach if he called it peach fuzz, you know what Aww. I mean? Jamie asks Lancel if he's lost his mind and asks where his father is. He's like, where is Kevin? Lancel says he's gone, and he asks Jamie to pray with him. Jamie asks if the father will give him a new hand for praying, and Lancel says no, but he'll give him courage. The smith can lend him strength, and the crone will give him wisdom. The seven gods loomed above carved altars, the dark wood gleaming in the candlelight. A faint smell of incense hung in the air. Yeah, so Lancel's actually sleeping beneath a different altar each night, getting visions allegedly from each god, maybe, I don't know. Jamie thinks of Baylor the Blessed allegedly having visions, especially when he fasted. And then he asks Lancel about the last nourishment that he had, and Lancel says, Faith has nourished me, and Jamie's comment to him is, Faith is like porridge, better with <laughs> milk and honey. I mean, not wrong. Not wrong. Yep. I'm a syrup girl, but I like I like honey. Do you? I like honey. I just don't like it in my porridge. Oh uh, no, I do that. Uh for oatmeal. Anyway. Lancel tells him he dreamed he'd come, that in his dream, Jamie knew what he had done, his sins, and killed him for it. Because that's kind of Jamie's thing, you know? Um <laughs> You're Fair. more like to kill yourself with all this fasting. Didn't Baylor the Blessed fast himself onto a beer? Our lives are candle flames, says the seven-pointed star, and the errant puff of wind can snuff us out. Death is never far in this world, and seven hells await sinners who do not repent their sins. Pray with me, Jamie. If I do, will you eat a bowl of porridge? When his cousin didn't answer, Jamie sighed. Seven hells await sinners who do not repent their sins. Hmm. Jamie, repent. Jamie tells him he should be making babies with Amory in order to keep the peace in Castle, but Lancel doesn't want it. Lancel shuddered. Seven save me, but I wanted to be you. And that's the very crux of this chapter, right? Jamie comes mm -hmm. to Derry and he sees the life that Lancel doesn't want, which is the life Jamie wants, the life Jamie was originally born into and Jamie unfortunately can't have. And he projects himself into it, while confirming and believing the truth about Cersei, Lancel's wife is cuckolding him for a very strong boy, and seems to be using her feminine wiles for protection and swords, much like Cersei, and Jamie is basically screaming at him, Lancel, your wife will cheat on you if you don't fuck her, because he was trapped in a dungeon, unable to fuck Cersei while she cheated on him. We know that's not gonna change much they didn't establish the boundaries of the relationship oh my god eliana it's different anyways lancel it doesn't want this different life. lancel wants honor he wants glory to fulfill a sacred vow like what jamie went into when he was younger and jamie jamie wants a home now a wife children he could never love or have the the love of the commoners the love of the f small folk Lancel's throwing away everything Jamie wants, everything that Jamie could never have. I mean, like, that that's a very Jamie thing to do as well, right? There's so many ways that Lancel doesn't realize that he's following in Jamie's footsteps and throwing away your shot at, like, everything that could possibly make you happy. That's a, that's a Jamie move. And beyond that, you know, earlier you were actually discussing and pointing out how Harwin is, of course, a plum and this strong situation, right? But it does feel to me kind of like uh, the situation that happened to Ossifer Plum, but kind of in the reverse, like, who is rumored to have a six-foot cock. 
because somehow he managed to impregnate his wife, Elena Targaryen, uh, from the grave as he died during the bedding, and then Viserys Plum was eventually born, probably actually by Aegon IV, but whatever. Anyways, but only here, Harwin is actually the one who's taking on the role of fathering a secret bastard that's going to be passed off as a trueborn, and Lancel will be playing the Ossifer Plum role, kind of, you know. And then this bastard's probably going to get passed off as, like, a trueborn, you know, the, quite, the way that, like, Cersei did. It all really comes full circle. Or Rhaenyra, yep. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. all of that. All that. Jamie says, better him than Baylor the Blessed, and reiterates that if Lancel does not fuck his wife, she will fuck Harwin Plum. And Lancel's like, cool, good for her, man. You know, he's, yeah. he's like, good for her. And he says, I said some words and gave her a red cloak, but only to please father. Marriage requires consummation. King Baylor was made to wed his sister Diana, but they never lived as man and wife, and he put her aside as soon as he was crowned. The realm would have been better served if he had closed his eyes and fucked her. I know enough history to know that. In any case, you're not like to be taken for Baylor the Blessed. No, Lancel allowed. He was a rare spirit, pure and brave and innocent, untouched by all the evils of the world. I am a sinner with much and more to atone for. That's not how I would describe Baylor the Blessed. But... Yeah, I mean, like, with all, what happens with the Maiden Vault later, and, I mean, Baylor actually comes up quite a lot, right, in Cersei's chapter right before this one. And so we, we see Baylor as kind of, like, this looming presence in all of this, like, beyond the militarization of the Faith uh, and the Maiden Vault as well. But as we discussed in our Maiden Vault episode, I mean, I think that there is potentially more at play here for Baylor than just piousness because it seems as though Baylor was very much using the power of the faith to secure his rule versus uh, the claims of his sisters and their children, which could have threatened it. And it makes a lot of sense seeing the power that the faith has on that political level in Cersei's chapters, but also how it acts here with that very individual hold that it has on Lancel. It's a really intimate look at why Lancel chose Faith when his whole family rejected him and kind of pushed him out and tried to button him into yeah. a hole that he wanted nothing to do with. And when you consider the visions, whether or not he's starving himself to have them, that makes it even more interesting. Especially that dream. I mean, that dream is wild. We didn't really touch much on it because it's not much to say about it, but he dreamed Jamie was going to kill him after he found out. Like, Jamie's been dreaming about killing anyone about this. <laughs> Yeah, but then Jamie doesn't, and so yeah. part of it is kind of like, is it a vision, or is it Lancel's guilty conscious? It, because, guilt. I mean, he clearly feels guilty. He's having yeah. like a confession moment here. Yeah, so he admits he served the wine that kills Robert, and that he was his real downfall, but Jamie knows that isn't all, and he keeps pushing. He asks what else he did to require so much atonement, noticing Lancel's wearing a holy hair shirt under his tunic, and Lancel bows his head, crying, which basically confirms it for Jamie. You killed the king, he said. Then you fucked the queen. I never- Lay with my sweet sister? Say it. Say it. Never spilled my seed in, in her. Cunt, suggested Jamie. Womb, <laughs> Lancel finished. It is not treason unless you finish <laughs> inside. <laughs> Sorry, I know this is like an emotional moment, but I can't. You can't say that without laughing. 
I can't say that, like, with a straight face. It is not treason unless you finish inside. (laughs) I gave her comfort after the king died. You were a captive. Your father was in the field and your brother... She was afraid of him, and with good reason, he made me betray her. Did he? Lancel and Sir Osmond, and how many more? Was the part about Moonboy just a jibe? Did you force her? No, I loved her. I wanted to protect her. You wanted to be me. His phantom fingers itched. The day his sister had come to the White Sword Tower to beg him to renounce his vows, she had laughed after he refused her and boasted of having lied to him a thousand times. Jamie had taken that for a clumsy attempt to hurt him, as he'd hurt her. It may have been the only true thing she's ever said to me. Hmm. I want to come back. I know this is a serious scene once more, and like what happened to Lancel is not funny, but it is not treason unless you finish inside. I'm going to tell that to everyone I meet from now on. It's not treason unless you finish inside. I mean, I get why. The logic makes sense, but also... Yeah, it, it's like, literally like, come on her tummy or you're a dummy. <laughs> come on her back, because elsewhere it's whack. You can just imagine Cersei being like, it wasn't treason, you didn't finish inside. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like... Anyway. Uh, but, so, so first of all, something that I thought of quickly, you know, uh, before we read this quote aloud is, it is a confession moment, right, for Lancelot, like, very Catholic Church confession, but not just that, he's telling all of the truths that he believes, and it makes me think of how, what is it, in front of the God's Woods, in the God's Wood, in front of a hard tree, you can't tell a lie, but it's the faith of the seven here and his gods, but anyway, a random thought. We also have this fun thing happening in these chapters for both of the Lannister twins. So we discussed this a bit in our Patreon episode recently on Mir and Taina Merriweather, but it kind of seems like what Cersei wants and part of what she liked in Jaime was having someone that was a mirror to her and reflected her, but mostly what she wanted to see in the mirror. You get a lot of like, he's, he's the mirror for her evil queen from Snow White, right? And she becomes much more of that evil queen as she does more Aries like things where she hires people who also then become that mirror for her. They reflect back to her, her desires, what she wants to hear and only what she wants to see. Whereas Jamie's story is also very much about reflection and, and is also full of mirrors. It's not just that he's projecting onto Lancel all these things. Lancel really did want to be Jamie, right? And, and Jamie's story starts out with, Brienne, who reflected to Jamie the knighthood that he longed to embody, that he aspired to, and then fell short on. Loras, who reflects Jamie as the boy that he once was when he first joined the Kingsguard, uh, and also caught in the forbidden love, then no one knows that. It's not treason if you don't finish inside. Then we have Lancel, who's <laughs> who's the man that Jamie actually became disillusioned and broken as a Kingslayer. And a queen fucker, something that Lancel says. And when, when he says both of those lines together, you suddenly really see how how similar they become. And yeah, it is still pretty treasonous. Maybe not the coming, not coming inside, but the part where you kind of help kill a king. Kind of treason. Yeah. Very treasonous, actually. And interestingly, Lancel is of a very similar age that Jamie was when Jamie slew Ares. And 
at some point I do want to spend more time on Lancel and what becomes of him because he takes a very different path than Jamie, right? Once he comes across this sort of brokenness and disillusionment. And it's more similar to Aaron, Dampere, Greyjoy, and I, I think how, I, in my opinion, how Lancel was also sexually abused in his youth, and he lived through the trauma of the Blackwater, and he, like the Dampere, finds comfort and meaning in religion. I think that's a great reference. I was thinking about Dampere through a lot of this, and especially when you look at, like, the hair shirt, which I know we talked about a long time ago in, oh my god, what chapters were it? But it's not the first mention of a hair shirt. I know that. We've talked about it before in this. And uh, it definitely reminds me of Aaron, especially with the religion. Absolutely. And I mean, it's sad because this is exactly Jamie if Lancel went on for 20 years more, you know, like sleeping with Cersei, being emotionally abused, physically abused, on and off, back and forth with her, both of them abusing each other. I mean, that's what happened to Jamie. He just kept doing it. Yeah, and in a way, now that I think about it, Jamie is trying to figure out, am I a Lannister, am I not? And is in some ways trying to divorce himself, as you said, from that in many ways, and is leaning into that Kingsguard identity, which also calls for celibacy. And it seems like Lancel is kind of trying to erase himself of his Lannisterness. Right by leaning into joining the faith and becoming one of the sparrows or poor fellows, right? Yeah. So Lancel pleads for Jamie not to think badly of Cersei, lol, uh, since he didn't come in her or make a baby with her. And Jamie wonders what Lancel would say if he suddenly confessed his three treasons to him, Marcella, Joffrey, and Tommen. Yeah, and so a lot of this comes back to what we were talking about earlier, where Jamie's actually thinking about fertility. And I found the language here and usage of three treasons, that specific phrase, quite interesting because, you know, especially if this chapter were once next to Danny chapters when these were all one book, because the line is, you know, those three treasons, will you know? And it's not betrayals. People think it's betrayals, it's treasons. It's kind of different. One of them has to do with coming inside and the other doesn't. And I don't think that what's happening here is at all prophesied mm-hmm. for Danny right here. But I do think of how, in a way, like all three of the Lannister bastards, as, as those three treasons, are kind of embody that for gold because of their hair or for blood, the bloodlust and vengeance that, that, that sex is born out of in some ways, but also um the blood of incest and for love, but I, I don't think that this is how it is in Danny's story, right? But I think that there are some fun thematic things that you can read between the usage of that phrase. Yeah, and if you take it back to when we had Joe Magician on our podcast for Jon Snow, uh, we kind of discussed those three treasons in length, right? And we talked about a couple of things I spoke about was were Eamon had his own three treasons, Right, and mm-hmm. his last treason was trying to go east to help Danny and dying. Uh, John had three treasons, and his last treason, of course, he died for in A Dance of Dragons. And there's the idea that Danny's three treasons she will die at the end of, right, for a fourth test because John and Eamon both failed their fourth test and died. John got to come back, and we don't know what the end game for Daenerys will be, obviously. But if we look at season eight's end game, we had a couple hypothetical theories about why Jamie and Cersei died the way they might have in the show versus 
maybe it might be a little different in the books, right? Like there may be a pretty aggressively violent death for Cersei at Jaime's hand or hands. Uh, We don't know. I don't really want it to be some disgusting display of brutality against her. I know a lot of people really root for that. I'm not kind of the person that just likes people to root for being in chokeholds or whatever. I don't know. It makes me wonder, like, if the three treasons here in the books are running parallel, right? As the three treasons being Marcella, Joffrey, and Tommen. But, like, you broke it down. The gold, the blood, and the love. Maybe Jamie's last test will be Cersei, and maybe he has to kill her. Or not has to. It's a choice. But maybe that's his last treason. Yeah. His test. And I have explained before. I, I don't... I know it's not likely. I still think it's funny if it'll be Tyrion. Yeah, I think it'd be hysterical. I don't think it's likely. I would die I laughing, think, though. I'm just like, you did it, Cersei. You figured it out. <laughs> but back to Lancel. Lancel is telling Jaime he was angry at Cersei after the battle, but that confessing of the High Septon helped. And, you know, you must forgive Cersei. That's what the High Septon told me. And Jaime's like, wow, so you told the High Septon you fucked your cousin. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And you know what's really funny is we get the next chapter where the uh, the Quiet Isle, we learn that the novices on the Quiet Isle only get to speak once a week to tell their penances and, you know, beg to be heard and beg for forgiveness and repenting and yada yada, and that otherwise they cannot speak. So we also learn that the elder brother knows about the Stark sisters because immediately he's like, oh, interesting, you're Brienne. Who are you looking for? Sansa Stark? Everyone comes here looking for her, first off. Uh, but also because, you know, Sandor won't shut up about the Stark sisters. Like, his one day a week where he gets to talk to the, the elder brother and the, the non-novices, you know he's just sobbing about these Stark girls all the time. And I think that's really interesting that we go from this religious chapter right into the next religious chapter on that aisle of people that aren't speaking or aren't able to speak uh, or confess mm. weekly, etc. Yeah, because again, this is a confession. But yeah, absolutely. And well, more than that, season- from this confession, Jamie kind of realizes like, oh, you told the High Septon that you were banging Cersei. Like, he thinks, he thinks to himself, he wondered if his cousin had any notion the fruit his words had borne, because of course... Him confessing to banging Cersei to the High Septon is why Cersei had the High Septon killed, because she didn't trust and thought he knew too much. Uh, In Cersei 4, she says, No man can ask for more than to die peacefully in his sleep, full of years. So this is confirmation for Jaime for more than just Cersei banging Lancel. It's kind of like confirmation that she's evil. Like that she had the Septon killed because Lancel told the High Septon about that. And Jamie kind of knew he just chose not to see all these years. Yeah. 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 Lancel then declares that he's denouncing his lordship and wife, and that Amy and Harwin, you know, they can have the keep and the lordship if they like. Take it! He will be swearing his sword to the improved warrior sons, trademarked. Jamie's like, "That, that was literally 300 years ago. Wake up, Lancel. And Lancel's like, no, 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 didn't you hear? The Septon restored the poor fellows and the warriors. And Jamie's like, what? What? He doesn't remember which Targaryen had fought to suppress the orders. He's like, I don't know if it was like Maker or Jaehaerys. And he's like, Tyrion, Tyrion would have known who it was. Also, it was Jaehaerys. Read a fucking book, Jamie. Maker tried real hard. Yeah. 
It was both. I think Bagor killed all of them and then Jaharis actually made it law, right? Right. Well, Jaharis shut it all down when he came to power, like, in totality and the right way. Not just, you know, butchering people in the streets. Killing all of them, yeah. Yeah. It is striking, though, to me, actually, like, that neither Cersei or Jaime know for sure or care. Because the reader is told, as, as we said, it's kind of both. And we're actually told that a little in that Cersei chapter right before this one for different reasons and times of how, uh, and how they do it. And she, like, doesn't fucking care. She's like, oh, worms, okay, whatever, keep going. But all this time... So I, I do think it's interesting that neither of them know that. And then, of course, Jamie thinks Tyrion would have known. And this is, like, I don't know, the third time that Jamie's like, yeah, Tyrion would have fucking known this or something like that. It happens a lot in this chapter, as you were pointing out, Chloe, of, like, where he's kind of having this conversation with Tyrion in his head. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think again to something that Atwell wrote in the, his analysis of Jamie Six and A Storm of Swords, where Jamie at one point thinks, what would Tyrion do in this situation? And he thinks that it's quite pointed that Jamie doesn't think, what would Tywin do? Which kind of goes to show that in the first place, like a little different, right? Because Cersei is constantly thinking, what would Tywin do in this situation? She kind of fails at doing that. But anyway... Jamie over here is, like, idealizing still, like, his younger brother's cunning and wit from before, you know, Tyrion killed their father, right? Um, <laughs> whereas, like, Tyrion has kind of become much more cynical, and he is constantly thinking, he was thinking about it before, like, what would my dad do? And he's thinking that even more so now that he's in Essos and after all the terrible things that have happened to him, right? Whereas Jamie's still like, what would Tyrion do? And it, it, it reminds me of the same way that Jamie would in his earlier chapters, sort of dissociate and take comfort and think about Cersei and and think about that as a way to kind of escape. He's not escaping here, though, but it's like he's replaced the Lannister sibling he thinks about constantly with Tyrion now. And again, it's not current Tyrion, because we all know what that guy's like right now, who is kind of pining for his brother, dreaming about him and feeling guilty about him, too. They're, you know, like Fievel and his sister singing somewhere out there to each other, but the smart Tyrion from before would know what to do. And I I think there's something kind of interesting here with that older brother idolizing his younger brother. Yeah. And I guess in a way we see it when we look at characters like Arya and Sansa, who, you know, the world declares that they hate each other, obviously, because that's not how siblings act. I'm just kidding. And I mean, we don't know. I know, I would <laughs> we never literally know. have no experience. I will never. Actually, that's not true. All of my friends had way too many siblings. I mean, one is too many, but like, I'm talking like four, five, you know? So I, I understood siblings, Eliana. I know I say I don't get it, but oh man, so glad I don't have them. Uh But it makes me think as well, like, now that he's really cut those ties to Cersei, now that he's really severing it and he's thinking of this idealized Tyrion, younger Tyrion, Jaime at this moment is the only Lannister in this exact moment, chronologically speaking, hell, even to the end of the books right now of what we have, he's the only one progressing. And you cannot quote me on that legally, because I don't care about Jaime Lannister, but... We don't have to quote it. We're going to just put it in this episode, Chloe. You don't have to do For that the either. public. <laughs> That's going to the public. So Lancel offers to show Jamie the letter that he has written from King Tommen's consent about the warriors being risen. And Jamie's like, I don't need that. I want to know why you threw away your freedom for a vow. And Lancel's like, I don't know. Why did you, dude? Damn. Damn. 
Lancel like is like, I haven't eaten in 40 days, 40 nights, and yet I still got the clap back, Jamie. He really does. And Jamie's also like, whoa. So then we end up with uh, this quote where Jamie's thinking, for honor, Jamie might have said, for glory. That would have been a lie, though. Honor and glory had played their parts, but most of it had been for Cersei. A laugh escaped his lips. Is it the high septon you're running to, or my sweet sister? Pray on that one, cause. Pray hard. Will you pray with me, Jamie? Dab. Aw, Lancel. First of all, I want to be like, for honor, for glory. Those are both horses, Jamie. Valid, <laughs> valid reasons. Also, I don't know what's going on here with Lancel constantly asking Jamie to pray, other than like he's really into God slash gods now. But I'm gonna I'm gonna drop some spoilers of the Forsaken, so everyone skip forward thirty seconds if you don't want to hear it. There are these moments where Euron Greyjoy tries to tempt Aaron into worshiping him. That uh, I've written an essay uh, that is reminiscent of Jesus in the desert fasting and the devil asking Jesus to bow to him and Jesus refusing. But. Lancel implores Jamie about three times, I think, to pray with him, and each time Jamie refuses. I don't know what's going on here, but it's something that I that seems interesting with those several asks. Yeah, that's uh, three times feels really significant. Yeah, it it kind of does it remind me of a oh god, what is it? There's a Bible verse, the seventy times seven Bible verse. You know, mm, yeah, um, the, the forgive. There's a lot of that going on with Lancel right now. Lots of, uh, not seven, but 70 times seven. You know, Lancel's got forgiveness to go around for everyone right now. <laughs> Jamie observes the sept. The mother's mercy. The father's judgment. The warrior with the sword. The stranger in the shadows. He thinks, I thought I was the warrior and Cersei was the maid. But all the time she was the stranger, hiding her true face from my gaze. And this is... A very significant line, I feel, and it comes up every now and then, and I think it's something we'll probably dig into more in Cersei's chapters. Yeah. Jamie tells Lancel to pray for him if he likes, but he's forgotten the words. Leaving the sept, he thanks the sparrows facetiously, saying he feels so much holier, and goes to dance with Sir Illin Payne in the moonlight in the godswood of Derry. Bare black branched trees with dead leaves at their feet scratch at the sky, and Jamie points at Raymond Derry's bedchamber, conversing with Illyn, a very one-sided conversation. He tells him the night Arya Stark's wolf ran off, his sister wanted the girl to lose a hand hmm, for striking someone hmm. of the royal blood. That's interesting. Robert told her she was cruel and mad, and they fought and drank and fought. Later, when Robert was passed out snoring on the mirish carpet, he offered to move Robert into the bed, but she asked Jamie to take her to the bed instead, and he stepped over Robert and fucked her on the bed, vowing to kill Robert if he woke up, because, you know, wouldn't be the first king. That would be treason. Yep. Uh, <laughs> As I was fucking her, Cersei cried, I want. I thought that she meant me, but it was the Stark girl that she wanted, maimed or dead. The things I do for love. It was only by chance that Stark's own men found the girl before me. If I had come on her first. The pockmarks on Sir Illyn's face were black holes in the torchlight, as dark as Jamie's soul. He made that clacking sound. He is laughing at me, realized Jamie Lannister. For all I know, you fucked my sister too, you pock-faced bastard, <laughs> he spat out. Well, shut your bloody mouth and kill me if you can. 
Take it out. Good. <laughs> Work it out, boys. Right. Work it out. Right. Um, I've always really loved there's this parallel with Cersei crying out, I want, I want, uh, back to Catelyn Stark in yes. A Clash of Kings, Catelyn Seven, the chapter before she actually meets slash they capture Jamie, And she thinks and says, I want Bran and Rickon back. I want, Catelyn hung her head. I want, she said once more, and then her words were gone. I think this is such a very... I think putting these two quotes together and looking at Cersei and Catelyn uh, against each other as separate characters, obviously, but also against each other as mothers and as women seeking agency in the story. It's once more really interesting to see how the Starks are presented with grief and how they interact with grief and how Cersei interacts with things like grief or anger or vengeance or want. And you even look back to things that Cersei said, like when she was speaking to Sansa and said, Love is a sweet poison, but it kills you all the same. And of course, Catelyn on the other side thinks laughter is poison to fear. Uh, hmm. With Jamie earlier speaking about how cutting the small folks' tongues won't help or make them love you, with Sansa thinking, when I'm queen, I'll make them love me. Uh, those kind of thoughts are just really interesting juxtaposed against each other and seeing just who Cersei is and Cersei's ideology and what her and Jamie and Tyrion were raised on compared to what. Sansa and Catelyn were raised on is made so apparent in this. Yeah, I, I I think that's a great parallel. And, you know, it makes me think of another character who was also experiencing grief and pain. And it's similar similar language, right? Where Arianne Martell, mm. who, if you'll all remember, a while ago we had Fat Walda on to talk about Arianne. And then a lot of those were discussing her parallels with Cersei. But Arianne, when she thinks of the death of Ari's Oakheart, thinks, why did you do it? Why throw your life away? I never told you to. I never wanted that. I only wanted... I wanted... I wanted... Yup. That ringing. And it just ends. It's like there's something tied, right, when it comes to these women and and what society denies them and the grief that they they have and and the things that are that they want, but it can't be voiced because there's so many things right to want. Yeah. In those moments, when it comes to power and who knows, right? So coming back also to the quote, there was something else that was interesting there, right, in terms of Cersei wanting Jaime to maybe maim or kill Arya. And, you know, I kind of do wonder what Jamie would have done in light of who he is now, right? And telling people, wait, like, you can't... His Kingsguard. And telling them, you can't just, just go around being hitmen because Cersei or Joffrey tell you to kill people. Like, and of course, as you pointed out before, how he refused to bring Tyrion's head to Cersei. Uh, I, I think that's interesting and something else to call out, especially as I reread some of Cersei's chapters alongside Jamie's to contextualize his, is we've talked about that really fraught portrayal of Cersei and Jamie's sexual relationship. And it's interesting that a lot of those moments that we see between Jamie and Cersei, it seems like she has an ask for him every single time, and also in the ones that Jamie recalls, such as this moment. Versus how Cersei thinks of her sexual relationship with Jamie, which for the most part is, some of it is is fraught in terms of the taking, and we discussed that in our Patreon episode and near a little, but, and then some of the quotes prior to Jamie's chapters, but a lot of it is very, 
she's she has quite a positive view of it and thinks of like those moments of them sneaking and taking these stolen pleasures right you know putting it in those terms of what jamie would have done when he came across aria it actually reminds me which i think we've discussed this revolving around these kind of plots before uh of snow white and the huntsman with a lot of what we discussed in our mirror episode our mirror mirror on the wall episode Mm -hmm. and uh with cersei and that whole mirror idea It, it does remind me of Snow White and the Huntsman, like if Jamie came across Arya in mm. the woods and he was supposed to kill her, what do you yeah. think he'd do? Um, uh, a lot of the thoughts come back to Sandor. Like earlier, there was that reference when Maria said something around something about how the butchers, you know, that would be being mean to the butchers to talk like that about what Sandor Clegane did or what the Hound did. And it's funny, of course, because, you know, the butcher's boy, Micah, really interesting reference there just like sprinkled Mm -hmm. in but with sandor it was the same thing right like he was sent as a huntsman after micah to cut him down and the sandor we know now is so much different i mean he's probably jacked right like his he's more jacked than usual his muscles have to be 10 times they are his arm day is like every day but uh i think jamie probably would have cut her down if he came across her i do uh he was willing to throw bran out the window you know for love if cersei said do it then he'd do it even if it was just like a little forethought so i don't know i think jamie would probably have killed Arya if he had come across her in the woods i really do i think bringing it back to what happened to bran is a good good argument for that absolutely and he was a different person he was and it seems like he wouldn't do it now based on how unhappy cersei is with his performance as a king's guard slash her now her personal hitman which is why he's out here in the riverlands right and so i i think you're right and i think that that's part of what we're seeing here that again that change as he and you can see that change because of the way this is structured because he's reflecting on things in the past mm-hmm. that's making up into, for two whole books he wasn't in yeah those things that happened in those books that he wasn't in but as you said we have concrete evidence that he would do something like this and the way that he's appalled and terrified of that now is part of how people interpret that change in jamie's character yeah absolutely well i guess we'll see you guys next week when i don't care about jamie lannister Chloe said that she saw Jamie changing. I did not say that. This episode. I don't think you have proof of that. Uh, I do. It's earlier in this episode. Everyone will have heard it by the time we get here. <laughs> well, that's a wrap on Jamie 4 in A Feast for Crows. Thanks so much for listening to me not care about Jamie Lannister in A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> uh-huh. She was the stranger to me and never saw her true face. We'll be back next week with Jamie 5. But first, make sure you're following us over on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N. Or if you have thoughts about this episode or future episodes or past episodes, shoot us an email over at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, you can follow us on a bunch of other platforms. Maybe you want to leave a comment. I don't know. You don't have to. On like Podbean or Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher or Spotify or Acast or I'm missing one, but I, I don't know what these are. They're, someone just puts us on there and we're there now. We live there. This is us. You can find us there. Absolutely. Yes. Hey, and you might want to just check out our Patreon where you can have a private RSS feed. 
where you can get all of our episodes, including for patrons five and up, special episodes about A Song of Ice and Fire, His Dark Materials, and other books that we are reading right now. Again, check that out over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. And hey, thanks so much for listening to us. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. You're the only other host, Eliana. I sometimes have animal interns. (laughs) Thanks all. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.